It's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 250 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is a very special one, and it kicks off with my interview with Neil Adams, a name in comics that almost everybody knows about for his work on Batman, X-Men, Green Arrow, and many other characters. We chatted at the recent Tampa Bay Comic Con, and he shared some of his opinions about Marvel and DC, about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, and his recent work on Superman. He's got a lot of fascinating things to say, so be sure to listen. Then, because this is a special episode, I'm going back into the archives and playing one of my favorite interviews, and that's with Wendy Peeney from ElfQuest. This interview first aired in episode 125, and a few months after it posted, Wendy paid me a real compliment by saying that this was one of the best interviews that she had when ElfQuest, the final quest, got started. So remember that this took place back at the beginning of the series, they're still going strong, and it's coming out from Dark Horse, so if you haven't gotten into ElfQuest, The Final Quest, I still highly recommend it. In episode 250, there's a lot to get to, so let's get on with the show. Talking right now with Neil Adams, legendary comics creator, and who has recently done some Superman work. So, how are you doing today, Neil? I'm doing great. I'm, I've uh, done uh, six issues of Superman. I guess it's Superman and a few additional Supermen, and of course Jack Kirby characters, which I love to do. And I couldn't get them all in, but I got an awful lot of them in. You know, and in fact, uh, we're missing Commandy, but I'm doing a Commandy uh, issue for DC Comics. They're doing a run of Commandy. And I'm doing the second book. Very good. Let everybody try to match that second book. So how did the coming of the Superman miniseries go? Was it, what, six issues? Six issues, and they're kind of collected in a uh, graphic novel. I had done Batman Odyssey, and since I hadn't been around a while, I forgot about the Internet. I didn't realize the Internet had such horrible monsters on it. (laughs) But I actually did. You know, I have a science thing where I talk about growing Earth and things. And if anybody comes at me on that, on the, I've got like 12 videos, I cut them a new one. And for whatever reason, I forgot. I listened to advice. And when I had Batman Odyssey out, folks attacked it on issue one and issue two and, and got all uppity on me. And I didn't answer because I asked around and I said, well, should I say anything to these people? And they said, no, ignore them. That was the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten in my life. You cannot ignore those people. They are rabid and awful people. And, of course, my first response would have been, well, wait a second, you pick up a Stephen King novel and read one chapter and understand it? I don't think you do. And if you're going to say something about it, how about the whole thing come out and then you say it? Wait till you read it. Isn't that a good idea? I didn't get to say that, but with the Superman story, DC Comics realized that this was going on, and so they got behind it right away. They didn't get behind Batman Odyssey because they were doing 52. So we really didn't have any time for side issues. So it sort of came out, and of course the books are selling well now, the collections are selling well now, and they put it in the big Batman Odyssey, which is great because I get more royalties. So they got behind it, so everybody was really nice. They read it carefully, and they read it slowly, and they appreciate Jack Kirby, I think as much as I did. And then I planted a seed right in the sixth issue, that would make them want to get more issues. So we'll see what happens. I mean, uh, it, uh, I also did a little bit of a turn on Superman there where I think with modern science fiction, science fact science fiction, it's time for a little bit of a change in the world of Superman. And maybe the idea that Superman is from a civilization that came from Earth originally, who is a human, then we can get rid of this idea that Superman is an alien. 
but he is a evolved human, and maybe we can accept sex with Lois Lane. <laughs> it's just, I'm just saying, yeah. You know, it just it's always seemed a little harsh to me that it's one thing to write to start a story like Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster did, where everything is new and everything is wonderful and nobody really cares about consequences. And so you have a character from another planet. Nowadays, we're too into the science of creatures from another planet. You know, we've seen Star Wars and we've seen science reports about all the planets that are out there. So we want more serious answers. So I think this little evolutionary stage is very good for Superman. And so we'll see what happens. Well, I enjoyed it. I thought the end was a really good cliffhanger there. And, of course, it's called Coming of the Superman, so, you know, that implies there's something else to go. Sales did real well, and it turned out real nicely. Do you like to write and draw, or do you prefer... I like to write and draw more than anything. I like that. I hate to say this, because I'm... Okay, this is going to sound like ego, so I, I withdraw the ego part of it, and I would say that it's a rationale. Okay? I just happen to be a good artist, incidentally. I am a good writer, okay, and I've written a lot of stuff in different areas, advertising, commercial comics, regular comics. I wrote uh, three of the four Spectres that I did. I wrote most of the Dead Man's that I did. I really wrote most of Superman versus Muhammad Ali because Denny had to bow out. So I've done a lot of writing. It's just that people notice my art. I mean, if you're going to talk about Neil Adams, what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about his artwork. Well... People ought to adjust that and say, well, wait a second. Yeah, I'll talk about his artwork, but I'll talk about his storytelling within the artwork. And then you start to realize, oh, maybe an artist isn't an artist just because he draws a pretty picture. Maybe he's a good comic book artist because he's a good storyteller. And I'm a good storyteller. Well, if I'm a good storyteller, the chances are pretty good I'm going to be a pretty good writer. Okay. And that's what I like to do. Batman Odyssey is written entirely by me. Superman is written entirely by me. And Dead Man's... I mean, Dead Man was popular because I stopped the trend toward doing what at that time was Dead Man stories. There's a bad thing that happens in comic books. As soon as you have a title like Dead Man, there's a tendency to write The Adventures of Dead Man. That's not what Dead Man was about. Dead Man was about Dead Man. It was not about stories that he had with other people. That's why when any time anybody picked up to do Dead Man, they would do Dead Man and his adventures with other people. That's not what it's about. It's his terrible life story or death story or life story. Mm-hmm. And if it's not about him, you really just don't care because he's dead. Who, who really cares? You want to know what his torment is and what his resolutions are and how it works. When I did the uh, original Dead Man series, people were coming in with stories about Dead Man faces blah, 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 or does this, or whatever. And I went to my editor and I said, look, I'm getting these plots in that don't make any sense. This book is about Dead Man. It should only be about Dead Man. And that's so he let me write it. And I wrote it about Dead Man. It became a really popular series. But it was about Dead Man. It's about Dead Man's story. It's as if you wrote a book, a long book, about his life story. That's what it's about. So different books have a different tenor, okay? Batman is, in my opinion, a particular kind of book. Superman, in my opinion, is a particular kind of book. Deadman certainly is a particular kind of book. It's sort of like when the uh, Marvel people are now doing movies. We can say, and we all pretty much agree, that certainly the Marvel movies are better than the DC movies. There's just no way to avoid that conclusion. And then we come to the second conclusion, that's because the Marvel people are reading the comic books and they're following the comic books and the DC people who was ever doing the DC movies are not. They don't know that Superman is a creature of the daytime while Batman is a creature of the night. And so they've made Superman into a creature of the nighttime. He's dark and dour all the time, doesn't even smile. Whose idea was that? Well, that was somebody who decided that the comic books just weren't good enough. Okay, we'll do our own Superman. No, you don't get to do that. But the people at Marvel, they've learned that lesson. They know their characters, and they know the characters that are in the books are in the movies. So they get it. The difficulty is that it's very hard to live in a world, the DC world, where they change all the time. You want them to be the same. And what I did with Batman was I created a great detective story. What I did with Superman is I created a great Superman story. Very light, very airy, kind of, you know, flying from planet to planet and doing all this kind of stuff. That's what I prefer DC do. They stick to their characters. Their characters are interesting. 
they should stick to them, but they don't. So we're running into a problem. That Marvel Comics is already solved. I forgot the trend of my question. The question well, here. I wanted to mention too because you talked about the fact that like Superman, all these characters are dark. DC's now with this Rebirth series trying to move away from some of the darkness. So well, your Superman series fits right in with that because you're doing a brighter, right, a, a more optimistic brighter, Superman, right. daytime Superman. Yes. No, I think it does. No, I don't want to say that DC may have taken a clue, but you know, people do read my stuff. And people do look at it, and the people go, yeah, well, he's right about that. And I don't want to say that it's responsible in any way, but I think that they're a little bit on a better note now. And I think, and I like that they're following their characters a little bit more. I didn't like the 52. I did, I, it was just chaotic. So I like what they're doing. I would like them to do it more, because I like their characters to be their characters. But, you know, you get used to character. Then it's sort of like Sherlock Holmes. You don't want Sherlock Holmes to be the Punisher. You know, you want to be Sherlock Holmes. You want Punisher can be the Punisher. You know, that's fine for those people who like that stuff. I personally don't. Okay. But I don't want him to be Sherlock Holmes all of a sudden. And I don't want Sherlock Holmes to be the Punisher. I think they're very clear demarcations. And we should pay attention to that when we're doing the stories. And the writers, you know, I don't know what supervision they're getting quite at DC. But I think that I'm hoping that it'll settle down to writing the characters as the characters not as somebody else's version of the characters. It's very annoying to see these guys make these movies and for them to decide what these characters should be and to give somebody, a character like Superman, even more power. I remember even in the first Superman movie, much as I may have liked it, okay, and it was a relief to get a Superman that seemed like a Superman, to have him jump out of a window and go down and have his clothes magically transform into a Superman outfit. What power is that? The power of transforming your clothes and then to go around the world and have the time go backwards? Another superpower that not even Superman could have? That is not even possible? How about just explaining flying? You know, come up with some kind of a rationale for flying because there's no such thing. Hello, maybe he can leap and maybe he can levitate. So explain it that way, you know, but flying around the world and have time go backwards? Sorry. That is just totally wrong. It's a wrong way to take the characters. And they have enough powers. I mean, one of the things that's so much fun about Batman is he has no powers. So you're dealing with a very strong Sherlock Holmes. And it's a lot easier to deal with until you start giving him powers, which is annoying. So I think that we should deal with our characters as they are because they're more fun. They're much more fun. Now, of course, another character you're associated with is doing real well on the television, and that's Green Arrow and the Arrow Show. We call it the the Neil Adams Show. Well, you know, I was going to say that the farther it goes along, the more it reminds me of the stuff that you've done with Green Arrow. If you really look at it, except for the fact he doesn't smile enough, and he ought to smile more because he is like a sort of based on the Robin Hood of Errol Flynn, you know, devil-may-care kind of smiley guy. Smile at the wrong time kind of character. Outside of that, they're doing a really good job. And what they are doing is they're borrowing from my and Denny O'Neill stuff in Batman and in Dead Man. I mean, in Dead Man, I created League of Assassins. Okay? In Dead Man, I created Nanda Parvat. In, in Batman, of course, we had the duel on the, on, in the desert, which turned out to be a duel on the mountain, with shirts off and swords. Why is Green Arrow fighting with a sword? I don't know. It doesn't have a bow and arrow. No, we wanted to just do that sword fight in the desert. So that turned into a very big internet laugh, you know, or a joke on, uh, well, if you're going to follow Neil Adams' stuff, you might as well take it right out the window. And they're very happy to do that, and they're having a great deal of fun doing it, and they make fun with it. But the truth of the matter is that they've hooked into something really, really strong. And, you know, I hear criticisms of that show, but I hear everybody's watching it. It's sort of like the Gotham show. you got to watch it. The thing is about those guys is they're very big fans. They are fans, and they would not. You can tell they're fans. If you're going to pull up Nanda Parbat out of your tush, right, you got to know that Neil Adams stuff because that's just in Dead Men. So they're following the stuff, and they're doing it, and they're doing a decent job of it. So I'm very happy with all of that. That's good. Now, you did stuff for Marvel, too. You recently did a miniseries not that long ago. We did one with Christos Gage a while back with X-Men kind of a thing. Yeah. I did it, and Christos Gage did a nice job, but I wasn't really happy with Marvel Editorial. I think that Marvel Editorial got very heavy-handed. I handed in a really good story, and uh, I can tell you a little bit about it. I had one character at the end 
And it was about X-Men before there were X-Men, about Wolverine collecting X, uh, mutants together and trying to be their leader and, of course, failing because he's not like Professor X, an intellectual guy, but a warrior. And if you take young teenagers out to fight, they will die. Not a good thing. Anyway, they were gathering together what seemed like mutants. And in the story, in the original story, they found a kid who looked sort of like a gray. You know what a gray is? Tell me what a gray is. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what it is? Okay. A gray is those little aliens, little naked aliens that are about three and a half feet tall. And they're skinny. And they have these big eyes, big almond eyes. And this kid was born who looked very much like a gray. And so they're collecting mutants, and he has certain abilities. So they want to bring him into the what is now becoming the new X-Men. And he's saying that he's not a mutant, but that he's the left-back child of aliens, that he's a gray. And he doesn't really want to join the mutants. On the other hand, they're the only people who will take him in because he's so alienated. Anyway... The crux of the story, as we're moving forward in the story, and we're getting to the end of the story, it gets very dramatic, and, you know, the X-Men are not doing so well. And then at a certain point, sort of to save them, this spaceship comes down, and sure enough, it's loaded with greys, and they come out, and this kid, you know, runs to them to finally meet his real parents. And they stop him, and they say, Dude, you're not one of us. You have nothing to do with us. You just kind of look like us, but no, you're, you're not. And it's a terrible, tragic moment where you see him just morally crumble. And it's a terribly dramatic moment. And then, of course, all shit breaks loose and uh, all kinds of stuff happen. But it was a terrific piece of drama. Okay. Well, editorially said, well, X-Men does mutants. They don't do aliens. So they can't be an alien. And I said, well wait a second, what about the Shahari? And, well, they said, no, no, editorially we decided that Avengers do aliens and X-Men do mutants. Pulled the legs right out from under my story. Destroyed the story. I went ahead and did the story, and then they gave me a writer to dialogue the story named Christos Case, and then he stepped in further under instruction to help to write it. It wasn't any help because it didn't follow the story, and it just sort of crumbled apart as we went toward the end. It's like, well... I don't think I want to do this anymore. It's not any fun. I don't understand that kind of uh, editing. I don't understand that approach. And considering that I was accepted into Marvel as the writer, why I got another writer, good as he is, I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me. So it was an unhappy experience. And it's one of those things I will never repeat. That's never going to happen to me again. That story, the meat of that story is left lying in the driveway, and nobody gets to read it. We should hang on to it. You can probably use that somewhere else down the road. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one to use, but, you know, maybe if I get the opportunity, I certainly will use it. Wouldn't you say a great piece mm-hmm. of drama? Oh, yeah. Sounds great. Oh, one last question. What projects are you working on that we can look forward to? I'm working on a Superman Harlequin story, where Harlequin is uh, it's based on the Superman versus Muhammad Ali story. It's sort of a takeoff. So I'm finishing that up, like, probably the end of the week. And I'm working on a Commandy story, the second story in the run. And then hopefully I'll be doing, well, I don't want to say what I'm going to be doing, because that would be telling you. Well, we should just keep our ears to the ground. Yeah. Do you have a website or something? How do people keep up with what NeilAdams.com. If you can remember my name, it's not hard to get it. .com. Very easy to keep up with me and know where I'm going, what I'm doing. I have no secrets. I don't hide away from anybody. Anybody, Neil Adams, if you know my name, you can find me. Well, we're talking at the Tampa Bay Comic Con, and it's great to see you interacting with fans and enjoying pleasure. Thank you very much. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News. Interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. Imagine another world much like Earth, but primitive, wild, and uncivilized. A world of prehistoric beasts and cave-dwelling humans. A world where each day is a test of survival. 
and where the night belongs to the Wolf Riders. Deep in the primeval forest they dwell, a small tribe of elves whose only friends are a pack of wolves. Every night they ride forth to hunt and howl, terrifying any superstitious human who dares cross their path. But all is not as it appears, for the Wolf Riders, like wolves, are really gentle and shy, a close-knit family group living in harmony with nature. Led by their dashing chief, Bearclaw, they fight only when they must to protect their hidden forest home and their loved ones. It's a real honor and a pleasure to welcome to the podcast Wendy Peeney, the co-creator and artist for ElfQuest, a comic that I have enjoyed for years, and I'm so glad I'm getting to enjoy it again. How are you doing today, Wendy? I'm doing just terrific, and just let me add a little bit to your introduction. I am the artist of ElfQuest, and I'm also the writer. Richard and I co-create the stories, but I actually write the scripts. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I saw him as a co-creator, so I kind of assumed he had something to do with the writing. I guess he has some. Richard has a lot to do with the writing, but it is more in the area of what he contributes to the story. And then he does a lot of editing work and helps to really craft the script once it's written. Oh, wow. That's neat. Yeah. That's great. Now, the first thing I want to say is that I've always loved the way that you portray the characters. I always feel like the elves are what we wish we were, mm -hmm. and the humans are who we are. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I always think that's something that, that always fascinates me, because so often elves are kind of mean and nasty, and you, know, they, you see them and they've got long pointed ears and long teeth and nails and stuff. But they actually are, are really human characters, and that's one of the things that's grabbed me from the very beginning. Uh, I'll tell you a real quick story about how I got into ElfQuest. My brother who was into comics as well, he was living uh, in a different place in the country where I was at the time. And so what happened was he sent me the four color trades, those bigger trades, and I sat down one night and got into them, and man, it was the morning before I knew it. And I was, <laughs> it was so great. You know, one of the ones that I remember the most is when Cutter gets to drink what, uh, what is like uh, uh, alcohol. Oh, yeah. That was a wonderful little bit. You know, he's standing there, and all of a sudden, he slowly starts to go down under the table. Which I... <laughs> a lot of people could relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> it was so wonderful. And from then on, I've been buying the book. And when the new series came out, I was really happy about it. You know, I'm thinking there's a lot of people who may never have been exposed to ElfQuest at this point. Do you want to give a little bit of the history of how it came to be? All right, just very quickly, uh, in 1977, there was kind of a boom in fantasy and science fiction, what was Star Wars and Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, and there was just a real strong interest in heroic fantasy. And also, at the same time, the independent comics movement was just starting to get off the ground. There were maybe two or three titles. So um, I, t I sat Richard down and I told him the story that I had in mind of ElfQuest, which is something I had had on my mind for a long, long time. I had been drawing elves or elf-like characters literally almost all my life. And um, so the timing seemed right to, to bring out a story like that in 1977. And, and uh, Richard took to it right away. And we asked around, we, we knocked on Marvel and DC's doors, and they thought what we had was too peculiar. So hmm. they didn't want to, uh, you know, they, uh, first of all, it was black and white, it was magazine size, it was written and drawn by a woman, and hmm. influenced by uh, Japanese anime and manga, which, which very few people had ever heard of at the time. Hmm. So it ha ElfQuest had a lot going against it. And and to make a long sh story short, because there were a number of adventures and turns in the road along the way, we finally decided to publish it ourselves. And uh, ElfQuest's beginnings owes, uh, you know, 99% of its life to Richard just learning by the seat of his pants how to become a publisher and <laughs> managed to get our first issue out. Um, it had been previously released by another independent company that was less than reliable, shall we say, but we got, we managed to get all the artwork back, and then we re-released our first issue ourselves, and mm -hmm. just took off from there. Um, I also want to give credit to Phil Suling on the East Coast and Bud Plant on the West Coast, two friends of ours. They were two distributors 
the, mm-hmm. the big two comics distributors at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of them knew me from my earlier career as a science fiction illustrator, and they trusted that. So they took a huge order from us. Between the two of them, they took 10,000 comics, which was unheard of wow. for independent comics in the day. Mm-hmm. And the thing sold out within months. Mm-hmm. So so we were on our way really, really fast. And the rest is history, shall because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's been interesting the evolution of the book you know you're right it started off black and white then color versions came out and then well now you're doing color all the time it seems like and I, I'm, I, that's a good thing I think because the black and white while it's entertaining in some circumstances it works real well to me the coloring and the way that the coloring is done just adds to the tone and the mood of the book and makes it enjoyable I really love the color because it just seems to add something special to the book the way that it's colored and you've been doing color now for quite a while what's it like to have the color involved with it well you see uh uh, back in the early 80s the first publisher we worked with uh donning starblaze collected uh the comics from the first 21 issues and brought out four large volumes that uh they uh wanted to be in color and uh, it was it was tough going at first uh, because uh, they didn't want to really invest in high quality materials. So uh, myself and my assistant colorists, you know, struggled with what materials we had, and I wasn't altogether satisfied with the Donning Starblaze volumes. Nevertheless, they sold like hotcakes. <laughs> and after that, uh, and at any time that we could, uh, we. We evolved ElfQuest. Uh, we would always bring it out in black and white first and then get a second life out of each release uh, in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked with Marvel Comics, and they, they recolored the first four volumes of ElfQuest in their way. And um, then onward from there, we worked with an animation studio called Chelsea Animation, mm-hmm. colored uh, Siege at Blue Mountain and Kings of the Broken Wheel for us, and... Uh, I think ElfQuest has always been associated with color, even though it is always done in black and white first. And that's the process we're even using today uh, with the Dark Horse uh, series, um, ElfQuest, The Final Quest. Mm-hmm. Dark Horse will be, is, is certainly releasing ElfQuest in color now as a bi-monthly series. Mm-hmm. And uh, those will be collected and put into color volumes uh, at some point. But uh, Dark Horse is also working with us on re-releasing everything we've ever done in black and white. So mm. fans of black and white will be able to have what they want, and uh, people who prefer color are certainly going to get that too. Mm. Wow, I didn't know that. You're going to re-release the stuff in black and white. That'd be fun. It'd be nice to have them both ways because, uh, you know, the color adds a little something to it. But the black and white is a, is a very powerful medium in its own. Absolutely. We do have fans who actually prefer the black and white. There are fans who do not like the digital color coloring that I or Sunny Straight do. And there are others who just worship the color and, and kind of poo-poo the black and white. So <laughs> we try to uh, we try to please everybody if we can. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing a great job of it, I think, because, man, even though you've been like – as I count now, you've been with DC and been with Marvel, and now you're with Dark Horse, and you've done – with other independent publishers. Yes. No matter where you guys go, you always put out a quality product, and I think that's just a wonderful you know, testament to ElfQuest is that uh, you guys just always want the best and give us the best as fans. Well, we really do bust butt on ElfQuest because um, it it has – certain things it requires. It's it's a rather elaborate kind of drawing style that you don't really see in other comics. I guess because ElfQuest is high fantasy, uh, the drawing style is very organic, and the fans do appreciate a lot of detail. They expect the characters to always look like themselves in every panel. So we work really hard to keep the characters on model, Mm-hmm. And we just pay a lot of attention to detail in the costumes, the scenery, the settings, so that it has a kind of a heightened reality about it. Uh, when you're working with a fantasy, it's really important that you're absolutely committed to the reality of it, even if it is just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And the more committed you are, the more your audience is going to believe it. It was, it was interesting you mentioned that because I was going to say, to me, these characters are not fiction. They are real. Oh. 
that's you know, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a, I, I always feel so great about that because I, I, I feel like I know these people. You know, they're, they're actual people, and if I actually found the right place, I would be there with these people. And you're kind of telling the stories as you see them, you know, but yes. they're, they're very real. And I, I, you know, not many comics do that to me. And I, it's just, I think this is one of the things that make it, makes it sing to me and so many other people, is that they're not just cardboard characters. You know, no, we, we talk. Not at all. Yeah, we, we talk a little bit about the fact that we saw Cutter getting, you know, tasting alcohol for the first time and things. There are experiences that they go through that we can relate to, and that's one of the things that makes ElfQuest just shine to me is that – and I, that's why I was so thrilled when I saw that Dark Horse was going to put out a new series. So, man, I got to go back and visit my friends again. Us too. Uh, you know, we actually started the final quest before we closed our deal with Dark Horse. We were going to get it out there one way or another, even if even if we just started by putting it on, up online first and uh, finding a publisher later on. We just trusted that that would come, but we knew we had to finish telling the story. So, uh, so we started putting the final quest up online with the first 26 pages of the, uh, the special, the final quest special, uh, which was kind of a reintroduction to the story, uh, that would enable, uh, new readers to sort of come into the universe and get acquainted with it and would enable longtime readers to uh, reacquaint themselves with where the story was going and where it had been. And uh, we uh, made a wonderful arrangement with the online news service Boing Boing that has uh, some major ElfQuest fans there. And we were ve- we were very surprised to find that out, given how sophisticated Boing Boing is. But <laughs> but it just so happened that it was a wonderful partnership. And uh, getting a page up on Boing Boing at intervals really got the fans excited about the new series coming. Well, I got to tell you, as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, man, I've got to have that. <laughs> so it was just so great because, you know, it had been like a little bit since I'd seen them. You know, I, this leads to a question. You have an interesting – I don't know if it's a problem or not, but it's something different than, say, other com- – some comics maybe, like Batman who's been around for decades and stuff. But with ElfQuest, you've had – you've told a lot of story over time. Yeah. And yet – and yet I still find that like the the, the final uh, quest coming it it's just as you know as engaging and I don't think you need to know everything in order to be able to read it but it definitely helps do you find it difficult between like new fans and older fans to tell the story or do you have to always think about everybody at that point well no we don't ever sacrifice uh the telling of the story for the purposes of of you know making sure that every single person is caught up on every detail that that way madness lies what, <laughs> what we tried to do in the final quest special which came out last october from dark horse was to tell a story this is a story that covers some three decades in the elves lives and over that period of time some are born some die and events start to shape themselves into the precursor of the actual final quest series storyline so it was it was a delicate balancing act to do uh, richard and i really really paid attention to keeping the story moving even as we were uh you know filling in gaps and reintroducing the readers to these characters you don't just stop dead in the middle of a scene and announce who a character is or what they did. You try to weave that character's history into the scene and and have it make sense to the reader. I think we were successful, at least based on the fan reaction. The the older readers were very pleased with the story, and and newer readers were very intrigued. Because mm. I was just going to ask you that question. I, what, what's the response been? <laughs> You're not hearing negative stuff. I, I think what's going to happen is everybody's going to like it. They're just going to see it different, slightly different ways than, than what we've, they've seen in the past, let's say. Well, the, are, are you, the reviews of Final Quest Number 1, which came out in January, uh, were just stellar. We, we had never seen reviews like that before or attention like that paid to ElfQuest. I think we owe a lot to Dark Horse in that regard. They have a marvelous publicity department, uh, and and they're very marketing savvy, unlike other comics publishers that we've worked with, who really didn't have their marketing act together. 
But but I think Dark Horse gets us in a way that Marvel and DC didn't because Dark Horse, you know, very much started out like we did as a scrabbly independent, you know, making its way up against the uh, the big two. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, Dark Horse understands us and understands what ElfQuest is and how to market it. And I think that is being reflected in the attention that it's getting right now. That, and we're so pleased with it, that. I can't tell you how pleased. <laughs> well, I'm proud to say I wrote one of those reviews and I oh. gave it <laughs> – Stellar remarks because to me having it back again was like uh, you know like you're with family again you know you get to visit family you haven't seen in a long time and there you are talking with them and stuff I just loved it and I got a lot of positive response to my review too yes. some people who had never seen it were writing me at, you know personally and saying wow I didn't know this existed and I would say get the trades get whatever you can you know catch up on it as best you can well thank and, you so much for that support I remember the review and uh, again we really really appreciated it uh, I'm going to apologize to you in advance though we are going to be doing some awful things in the final quest just awful okay and, <laughs> Uh, One of our formulas for storytelling is to think of the worst thing that could possibly happen to the characters and then go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, you know, I hate to tell you, but real life feels like that sometimes, that somebody's out there thinking of the worst thing they can possibly do to us, and then they go right ahead and do it, you know. So uh, uh, to me, there's a real, as I said before, there's a real feel to this that is, it just makes me want to just, I wish I could sit down amongst them and listen to them talk, you know. It would be just the greatest thing in the world. Now, uh, as far as, you know, have you gotten a lot of response from new people who have never heard of it before? Well, uh, that's the wonderful thing about the Internet because, uh, you know, I've only really been Internet savvy for about, oh, four or five years. Mm-hmm. And Facebook is an amazing thing. It's an amazing tool. It, it can be infuriating at times, <laughs> but it certainly helps you to generate awareness if you if you have something going on that you want people to know about. Mm-hmm. So uh, Richard and I are now overseeing three ElfQuest related Facebook pages. Uh, mm-hmm. We each have our own personal pages. And then there is an ElfQuest fan page and the official ElfQuest page. So there's actually four. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> you know, wow. every, every day we come up with something and we, we uh, you know, share it over to the various pages just to, you know, let the fans know what's going on and, and to keep them interested. And it often generates just miles and miles of commentary if something, you know, slightly controversial comes up. And the controversy is always good, too. It mm-hmm. really gets people talking. Mm-hmm. There's a, a guy I know, David, David Peterson. I don't know if you heard of Mouse Guard. Mm-hmm. He does that. And the thing he says is because it takes him, so he does the whole package. He, everything is, is his thing. And so it takes him a while to get it. And, of course, he uses a different size, too, than the regular comics are. And so that takes him a long time. Yeah. And the, when I interviewed him, he said one thing. What he does is every once in a while he does something on, on uh, social media just to let people know that he hadn't died. <laughs> they hadn't heard from him in a long time, and they wanted to know what he was doing, and so he, would, he occasionally does this stuff just to let them know, I am still working on it. Yes, I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I find that interesting. It, it's in, you know There are going to be the Luddites out there who are going to just say, well, this sucks. This is no good, and, and not give you any sort of constructive criticism. So, I mean, I get that too, believe it or not. But the uh, the thing to me is that in a way, I think that these, the, the Internet is a great big help because it, you get to understand what people are thinking out here. And, of course, nobody really represents the whole audience. You're going to get different snapshots. Absolutely. I mean, one of the first pieces of feedback we got from somebody when uh, the first issue of Final Quest came out was that they wanted their money back. Oh. But, <laughs> oh. but you see, you know... Uh, we ha- Richard and I sh- have a phrase that we really love, praise and blame all the same. <laughs> you know, it really doesn't matter. I mean, uh, we're at a point in our lives where if someone just doesn't feel comfortable with what we're doing and they let us know in no, no uncertain terms, uh, we just say, okay, live and be well. You know, maybe leave if you like. Maybe you'll come back later on and check it out again. And the wonderful thing is when uh, some people do, uh, we've actually had people leave because they're, you know, tired of it or whatever. And we do expect that. ElfQuest has been such a long-running series 
that we are in no way so unrealistic as to expect people to follow us for the full 35 years. We do have fans like that, but Mm. we're not surprised in the least when someone tells us, oh, you know, I I went to college or I got married and I just dropped away from ElfQuest and I haven't seen it in 10 years or whatever. And then they find our Facebook pages and they let us know that and they they come back into the fold and they get all excited all over again. And one of the most brilliant moves Richard ever made was on ElfQuest's 30th anniversary back in 2008. He decided that we should put everything that we had ever published online up to that date for free. Wow. For the fans to uh, catch up on the story, because at that time, ElfQuest had been optioned by Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers politely but firmly let us know that they didn't want us doing anything with ElfQuest while it was under option. So uh, Richard thought, well, that means for however long Warner Brothers has it, ElfQuest is going to be off the shelves and out of people's radar. Mm -hmm. So let's put it up. Let's put what we have up online for free so people can stay caught up on the story. It was a brilliant move. It got us, I think, hundreds, if not thousands of new readers and just completely revived ElfQuest uh, without it ever having to be on the shelves for those four years. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting because you know the the debate now, of course, in comics is digital versus print. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go digital? And some people say that the screens on like my, on my iPad, I buy digital copies of things too. Yes. The color will be a little different on the screen than it will be on the paper. Absolutely. But I'm still enough of an old fan, old style fan that I like to have the paper copy. Most fans do, and I think particularly readers of fantasy do. Um, I would say a large majority of ElfQuest fans, and there are there are hundreds of thousands out there, let us know that they like to be able to hold the book in their hands and smell the fresh ink <laughs> and have that experience. Uh, mm-hmm you know, of waiting for the comic to come out and then finding it at their store. And I, Richard and I fully understand that. Richard even more than I because he's such a bibliophile. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a digital person. I, I tend to be somewhat futuristic in my thinking. And um, I love looking at stuff online or reading it on paper. It, it doesn't make any never mind to me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, as long as they're reading it, that, that that it doesn't matter to me how people are reading it. Yeah, as far, as far as that goes. But do you actually are you using like Photoshop and things like that to create the artwork these days? Absolutely. In in fact, entirely, I use a Wacom Cintiq, which is a marvelous um, digital drawing tablet. It's large. It's I I think it's it's got about a twenty five inch width. And uh, this is something that uh, animators have been using for a long time to do digital animation and even regular 2D animation cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember first seeing them when I visited an animator friend at Warner Brothers uh, and getting very excited about it. And, and he let me play with it. And just being able to apply the stylus to the screen and be able to make a lovely, uh, clean line just got me really excited. So when I was able to get my own Cintiq, I taught myself to work digitally. And I've, as I said, I've been doing so since around 2000. Two or three. Mm-hmm. Well, now that you have the wonderful, blessed undo button, <laughs> which I, to this day, I love. You know it. I mean, I'll, I'll see a, a fabulous artist like Mike Mignola or Walt Simonson in my newsfeed, and they'll be talking about, oh, you know, I had a problem with this page, so I had to throw it out and start over again. And I, and I often message them and say, have you, have you ever worked digitally? Because it's so forgiving. Mm-hmm. Have that marvelous history function that you can go back through. So if you mess up, mm-hmm. you just go back through history and claim <laughs> what you did before you messed up. That's right. I think even I, I don't do the intricate stuff I'm sure that you do, but if I do something, I go, whoops, I don't want that, and I undo, and I get to start try something again. Exactly so. 
it, it's very forgiving. And I, I often think it actually makes your creativity a little more spontaneous because sometimes mistakes that you make lead you to realize what you wanted to do originally. Yeah. And if you can quickly go back through the history of your mistake and get rid of it and then do what you wanted to do originally, it makes the work better in my opinion. Yeah. Very true. Now, you mentioned earlier that, that Warner Brothers had a light. Yes. Has, has that expired? Is that why the books are oh, coming yes. out now? Yeah, okay. ElfQuest uh, was with Warner Brothers for four years, and they finally passed on it. Uh, they <laughs> they gave us the excuse that it was too much like The Hobbit, oh. which uh, which means they never read it. They never read <laughs> what they had. Yeah. But, uh, but this is the way the big studios work. They often buy up a lot of properties and hang on to them just in case they want them. And then they let them go. So so we're quite used to that. I mean, ElfQuest has been optioned more times since uh, 94. It's been optioned many times in Hollywood. And the option money is always nice. And, mm-hmm. and we always try to get as far as we can get with the movie. But it's never quite... Uh, Richard likes to say we've been up to the altar many times, but never quite got married. <laughs> anyway, I have to say right now that my personal belief, and I guess this is kind of spiritual, is that when the time is right for something, it happens. And so I believe that we've kind of been somehow protected by guardian angels over the years and that rather than have a bad ElfQuest movie or even a mediocre one come out, We've just gone through the system and will continue to do so until the absolute right entity comes along to do the absolute right ElfQuest movie. So we're not really worried. We just uh, keep expecting the right one to come along eventually. Well, I'm sure you've heard in the past that the animated versions of ElfQuest would be really interesting. If they followed your art style, to see that on the screen would be just a wonderful thing. So That's what we would prefer more than anything because, as you said a little while back, uh, the characters are people. Mm-hmm. And they're very strong individuals, and each character has a really strong personal look to them. And it would be wonderful if animators, whether it be 2D or um, 3D CGI, could capture the look of the actual drawing style. That would be wonderful. Mm. Well, that's what I'd like to see anyway. That's <laughs> just my thought. So, well, from, from your mouth to the gods of animation's ears. <laughs> <laughs> so well, why don't we talk a little bit about the characters? Because, sure. you know, Cutter to me has been a wonderful character ever since the start. And I, I like that they have soul names, yes. that their friends will know their soul names if, they're, if they have this attachment to them close enough. Yes. I always like that kind of, and it's not just male female. It'll be like like uh, uh, Cutter and and uh, his name escapes me right at the moment. Skywise. But Skywise, yeah, that they understood that. I yeah. kind of thought, you know, this was a. I talked a little bit about how this is the way we wish we were. I I often thought that you know this kind of a, of a friendship, you know, that, that that some sex dominates too much in relationships. That friendship is more than just a sexual thing, and I always liked that about Skywise and Cutter that they were very close on a spiritual level. And friends, and I, you know, I, I kind of that was one of the things about ElfQuest. I used to point out to people. I said, that, "Yeah, there's sexual things going on, but you know, there are relationships that are very close that are not necessarily sexually based." That's absolutely right. Uh, Cutter and Skywise are as much soulmates as Cutter and Lita are. Lita is his Cutter's life mate. Uh, they have two children, and uh, they they know it well. She knows Cutter's soul name. It's only the Wolf Riders that have soul names. Mm. The other elves don't because it's only the Wolf Riders that are mortal. And so the soul names uh, are a factor of their of their mortality. It's almost like um, a way of retaining a, a certain kind of personal integrity that the immortal elves don't seem to be concerned about. And so, yeah, so Cutter and Skywise are are soul brothers, just mm-hmm. like uh, he and Lita are life mates. Mm-hmm. I like Lita, too, I have to say. She's, She's you know. pistol. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is, is, you know, Cutter is very light. He's got white hair and he's got yeah. light-colored skin. And there's Lita, who has dark-colored skin, you know, and a, a much of a darker look to her. Although she's the one that really seems to have much more of the light. This is the, the wonderful contrast about these things. Cutter is the is much more of the physical 
can do more more active or violent things, while his soulmate, who is darker, is actually the light bringer of the bunch. Well, I love you mentioning that because we actually gave thought to that when we first created the characters. When the Wolf Riders are driven from their home in the very first story uh, by fire and they have to cross, they make a, a dreadful crossing of a desert and they come upon the Sun Village where they encounter for the first time ever another tribe of elves. They thought they were the only elves in the world, and then they meet the sun folk. And the sun folk, because they're desert people, are dark. But when the wolf riders first see them, Cutter says, well, I don't think they're elves. They remind me more of humans, and I don't trust them. <laughs> so we we wanted to play off the, the differences in cultures. Mm-hmm. And ElfQuest is never about good versus evil like most sword and sorcery is. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, there's always the evil bad guy and the good good guy, and good must triumph over evil. We mm-hmm. never tell stories like that. Our stories are always about knowledge versus ignorance. <laughs> so when the Wolf Riders come and discover the Sun Village, they're in a state of ignorance about the fact that there are other elves in the world. And it's the Sun Villagers, dark-skinned and elegant as they are, that teach the Wolf Riders that there are other ways to behave and, and a little bit more civilized be- behavior. Lita has been a very civilizing factor in Cutter's life. <laughs> well, isn't that true of real life, though? I have to say, it, it's kind of that. That see again, this is that real thing to me that they are very real in in how things go. Now, one of the things I've enjoyed about the new series is that Cutter's relationship to his daughter. Yes, is so fascinating to me yes. because she's kind of a chieftain, and much like he is, much like him in the storyline called Shards, the Wolf Riders split up into two splinter tribes, and Ember. Cutter appointed Ember as chief of her splinter tribe of wolf riders, and they did this for survival reasons. And much like Cutter, much like her father, Ember became a chief too soon. She was very, very young, and she had to learn, like he did, by the seat of her pants. And now more than ever in the Final Quest storyline, she and her dad are going to be very, very close because uh, it's, it's a tremendous learning experience to have to lead a, a tribe through trials and tribulations. And it makes you much stronger. And, and in a way, it takes away your innocence. So she and her father, who have both gone through that, will be closer than ever. The other child that Cutter has uh, with Lita, his name is now Sunstream. It was Suntop. But as he became an, an adult, his name became Sunstream. Mm-hmm. He is the magical one. He is going to be the pilot of the Palace of the High Ones, which is an ancient vessel. Mm-hmm. belongs to all the elves. And Cutter actually has a hard time relating to Sunstream because all this magic and powerful spiritual stuff is quite foreign to him. Mm-hmm. Cutter's extremely down to earth. And, mm-hmm. you know, he understands the way which is the way of the Wolf Riders. And Mm -hmm. the palace is really starting to interfere with that. So Mm -hmm. that is the premise of the storyline of Final Quest, which is basically who goes home to the stars and who stays and Mm -hmm. and why and Mm -hmm. what are going to be the consequences of that. You know, I'm so looking forward to it, but I'm going to be so sorry when it happens. <laughs> you know, because I've, I've gotten so attached to these characters and what they're going through. Oh, now, no, you, no, you won't, because look at it this way. Mm-hmm. We did our future quest stories in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked with other artists and writers and worked with the universe of ElfQuest in the future, way, way past the Wolf Riders. So mm-hmm. you know there's a future to ElfQuest. Mm-hmm. So that means the story doesn't end with the final quest. But I'm still going to miss these guys. I mean, you know, I'm. Well, no. I, How do you think <laughs> some are going to stay? You mm-hmm. don't know who. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, it, this is a bi monthly series going on. Apparently, you've had this conclusion in mind for a while. For many, That's, many years, at least since the mid 90s, if not earlier. Yeah. So how many issues are going to be in, in, in the final quest? Well, each volume is going to be six issues long, and each issue is 20 pages. So each volume will contain at least 120 pages of story, and then lots of extras and bonuses. Um, mm-hmm. And there's going to be, at the moment, it looks like there could be four volumes, but I, I will guarantee three. Okay. There could be as many as four. 
Okay. Because, uh, you know, also in this new series, there are new characters and yes. people we haven't seen before, yes. new elves and things like that. And I just, you know, to me, I just this world that you guys have developed is, is this huge blossoming thing that, you know, man, if someday you finally decided you don't want to do it anymore and somebody else could come along and pick it up and take the elements that you've laid down and, and create something amazing, you know, even if it wasn't you, but, you know, I, I'd rather you do it. But Well, uh, without naming names, we're already talking to people who have ideas about what they want to do with certain characters once the Final Quest series concludes. Wow. And uh, some of these ideas are really exciting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow, that, that's really something. This is something, this amazing thing that you guys have created. <laughs> it's just, it's astounding because, you know, I mean, you know, Batman's gone on for so many years, but a lot of the times you see the stories recycle. Yes. You know, but I don't see the stories recycling in ElfQuest. I see these people going in different places and different characters might experience the same thing, but that's real life. So to me, this, this burgeoning world of, of wonderful things is just, uh, I don't ever want it to end. Well, we had 10,000 years to cover. That, that leaves a lot of room for story. <laughs> you know, these these characters are extremely long-lived, and, and it's been an interesting challenge to um, make characters that are not human and, for all intent and purposes, immortal, to make them relatable. Because Richard and I both feel that there really is no point to telling a fantasy story unless it can say something about the human condition. Mm-hmm. And so we actually use the elves in the story to to uh, sort of make commentary on things that Richard and I feel are very important about society in general. Well, you're doing a tremendous job, I have to say. Thank you. Now, are there other projects you're working on, or is the final quest going to keep you busy for a while? Well, while uh, ElfQuest was optioned by Warner Brothers, that left me with four years where I, I couldn't really do much with ElfQuest. Mm-hmm. So I took a side trip to the dark side with mm-hmm. an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death. Oh, wow. Now, this is a, a very adult-oriented, uh, really way out there and really goes there horror story. Mm. Um, because not a lot of people know that I actually started out as a horror artist. <laughs> Some of my earliest work, which is going to Columbia University, by the way, we donated the body of my work to Columbia University, and mm-hmm. we're very, very honored that it's going to be archived there. Some of my earliest work was of the horror genre, and um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is my favorite horror author, and Mask of the Red Death was always my favorite of his stories. Even though it's a very short story, it's only eight pages long, and there are really no characters in it, but the atmosphere, the mood he generated in this story stuck with me all my life, and so I thought, well, I'm going to use this as the skeleton, and I'm going to create characters for it, and I'm going to explore the dark side of human nature. ElfQuest is a work of light, as you pointed out. It's it's a very high-reaching kind of spiritual story where we try to we try to show people treating each other as well as they can. Mm-hmm. But in Mask of the Red Death, I wanted to walk in the shadows and uh, do a story about people behaving very badly indeed. Mm. So that's coming out? It's out. It's been out. Oh, it is already out. So uh, who printed it? Well, I completed it in 2011. My original publisher was a manga publisher called Gokomi. Mm-hmm. And it was published as part of their Yaoi line. I don't know if you know the term Yaoi, but mm-hmm. it refers to a Japanese term called boy's love. Mm-hmm. There is gay romance in the story. Oh. And so the first volume was published through Gokomi, which was the first third of the story. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Gokomi went under and all the rights reverted to us. So Warp Graphics, Father Tree Press brought out the entire 400-page story after it was finished in 2011 oh. as a large specialty volume. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to find that book because I, I didn't even know it was out there. Well, if you 
mask without reading the book, you just go to maskoftheredeath.com, mm-hmm. put a dash between each word, uh, uh, because uh, we couldn't get the actual Mask of the Red Death name, so we had to have hyphens between each word. Mm-hmm. Maskoftheredeath.com, and you can read the story just like you can read ElfQuest. You can read Mask online for free. Oh, wow. But then you follow the information to actually buy the book. Oh, wow. Guess where I'm going after I get done talking with you. I, it, that's going to be fun. Okay. Gay romance. Not everybody is. <laughs> well, you, know, you all are doing a great job, and I think you're right that Dark Horse is really getting the word out about it. And I'm, I'm doing my best to let people know about it as well. <laughs> Because I, I just love the book. I think it's it's a classic. It's been a classic ever since it came out. Yeah. And it's on, it's only going to get to be more classic as we go along. We it, storytelling to me is a lost art. A lot of comics are being sold just to sell them and make money. You know, Marvel had a thing that had a little kid with a quarter, and they said, "How can we help you get his last quarter?" <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's not what comics are supposed to be about. It's supposed to be storytelling and things. And I think ElfQuest is just the ideal. You can you can read it for a while. You can read. Catch up on all the story and you get a bigger picture but ElfQuest is just this wonderful tremendous story with you know people that breathe and characters that exist and you come to be attached to and I like I said I hope it goes on forever I just think it's a wonderful you know a a wonderful comic story well in our relationship with Dark Horse we feel that Dark Horse is treating us far better than any other publisher we ever worked with we just love being with them and um, they have many many plans for ElfQuest and they will certainly be reprinting all the material that we have to date and keeping those volumes out there as long as people are interested in buying them. Well, I think you're going to find a lot of people are interested in those because, <laughs> you know, I, I still have my original ones. But, you know, if I found another version that was kind of – that added something to it was a little different than what I wanted. My old ones started to fall apart. I'd be after them in a heartbeat. Well, we really loved the DC archives that came out. DC reprinted the first four volumes and I completely recolored it and reformatted it and um, those are definitive as far as I'm concerned in in terms of the way I wanted them to look so uh, so you might look online for the DC archives until Dark Horse puts out its own because I, I think I have the first two of those. Uh-huh. I don't know if I have all four. I'm going to have to go after the other ones because I just got to have those. Every once in a while, I'm in the mood for a nice longer story, and I sit down and I open the book, and it's like Frank Miller said when he read the first Daredevil, he fell in. Yes. And that's what to me is I fall into the story, and I, I completely forget what time it is and what else is going on. I'm just lost with these people, and it's just such a great thing. I, you all just do such a good thing, and I'm so glad you're continuing on. I just think it's terrific. Well, we still love it. We love it very much, and we especially love working together. I think that's the biggest joy of it for Richard and me is we just love to tell the stories together and have story conferences and figure stuff out and mm-hmm. ask questions like, oh, my, can we go there? there <laughs> and every time we ask ourselves can we go there we always do <laughs> yeah yeah but that's good that's see that i don't see much of that kind of storytelling to be honest you know stretching the boundaries and moving things around and and making characters grow and learn through these unusual experiences i just you know i think that's that's the way storytelling should be well i think most companies are invested in their brand and their product and that means i mean you can't really have Batman or Superman or even Spider-Man grow beyond a certain point because they're constantly having to relaunch them for the next generation of readers, and those kind of characters have to be true to their brand. With ElfQuest, we're not so much preoccupied with that, uh, and and the major theme of the stories has always been growth. Mm-hmm. See, the irony to me is that the the more you do that and don't worry about the thing growing, the more it grows. That's the, that's the irony, ironic part to me. I just think but it's been so good talking with you, Wendy, and I continue to wish you and Richard and Dark Horse much success with this. I'm going to be supporting this as, as much as I can and letting people know about how terrific that ElfQuest is. Well, this was a delightful interview. Thank you for all the interesting questions, and uh, you know, thank you for your really great spirit in supporting us.
And that's it for episode 250. Next week, we begin the next 250 and more with another great interview talking with another wonderful comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics.